Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this weed. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the companion episode of Stages Conversation with Natalie Moscow. In part one, Natalie shared anecdote from her vast career, particularly the period when she worked throughout Australia in many shows garnering a significant profile along the way. Natalie arrived in Australia via the musical Hair after she'd been a member of the Broadway company. Subsequent stage sojourns included Greece, Two Gentlemen of Verona, The Magic Show, Gershwin, The Rocky Horror Show, Get Happy and Pippin. All of which she shares terrific insight, the triumphs and occasional trauma, and always with tremendous passion, joy and respect for an art form she adores and the folk who inhabit it. She recalls her first Australian too, the great Cyril Richard, who directed her as an 11-year-old in La Pericole at the old Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. In part two, Natalie recounts growing up and embracing an education in the performing arts and revisits celebrated performances in Follies as Emily Whitman and Grand Hotel as the ballerina Grushenskaya. Throughout her stellar career, she has also worked alongside key artists, teachers, performers and creatives. Everyone a contributor to Natalie's remarkable story and for who she continues to carry the torch of their combined artistry. So obviously you had aspirations from a small child to uh, to run away and join the circus, to, to, to be part of the theatre. Um, your education was in a performing arts high school, was it not? Well, yes and no. Um, I started at uh, Hunter Elementary, which was like um, an offshoot of Hunter College, which is a university. And one of the things that was very interesting is because we were supposed to be, I think we were brats, but we were supposed to be gifted intellectually. So my, they gave us a very well-rounded experience. We had our own Bunsen burners when we were in science lab. I mean, talk about, you know, you're five years old and you have a Bunsen burner. What the hell? What were they thinking? And uh, I was in the German group. We started with German. The other group started in French. We did a little Spanish. They switched me to the French group. Um, we we had art classes where you'd get pastels or and and we also had a lot of other things like performing some performing stuff. Arlene Francis, I don't know if you know her, but she used to do something called the Home Show, which was live. And when they came to Hunter, they actually they came and they had me sing a song called "I Hop 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 to London Town." God in heaven, I've been hop hop hopping to London Town ever since. I never stopped traveling. But uh, that was even before I did circuses here. The circuses here, I thought that was the circus had more 
impact though than saying I was hopping to London town. <laughs> um, but I did, I did for, <laughs> I did for a minute. I see, I had asthma as a child, so my mother put me in the ballet school to to build up my body. It's just like uh, I don't think Nancy would mind me saying. Nancy said that she was when she Nancy Hayes said she was very young. She had polio, and that's why they gave her dance. And um, it's the same thing. You kind of fall into it for other reasons, but then you find that it's it's a very good fit. And at one point, um, I I was I auditioned for the High School of Performing Arts, famous fame school. Well, I got into the dance department, even though I wanted to be in the theater department because they wouldn't let me audition twice. So I auditioned for dance because they thought I had a, my high school guidance, my, yeah, no, my junior high school guidance counselor thought I had a better shot, which I think is unfair. You hadn't ever seen me act, but there you go. Um, anyway, I got in and I realized that the kind of training they were giving, while it was very strong, was totally different to the kind I had been given. And I was ruining my technique. And I also was, because I was academically advanced, I was two years younger than all the other kids. And it's one thing to be in a regular school and be 12 or 14. But if you're a dancer, it's like an athlete. It's a very different body and capability if you're 12 and on point and 14 and on point. Um, point shoes, ballet, you know. Uh, and I was just out of my depth and I just quit. I just felt, and, and the thing was, some of the teachers would, would have sticks and would hit you if they didn't like what you were doing. It was really rather cruel. So I, I dropped out and went to a, a school called Quintana's where it was for people who were doing Broadway shows or wanted to do Broadway shows. And uh, uh, interestingly, Paul Jabara, who got into the original cast of Hair and later wrote a lot of songs like... Um, uh, it's raining, it's pouring, my love life is boring me to tears, you know, enough is in all the, the songs that they used in uh, Priscilla. Um, he, he did a lot of stuff with Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand. He was in that high school in my class. And Steve Curry was also in that high school in my class. And he got in to hair playing Wolf, the lead. And at, while I was at Quintano's, I also, everybody else wanted to do Spanish. I think they thought it was easier because everybody in New York spoke Spanish. Um, and I wanted to do French. So I was in a private French class with Bernadette Peters because she was doing Dames at Sea. And I had just dropped, I was doing full-time ballet by now. So I did French classes. And when I met her at backstage at Annie Get Your Gun, um, and I said, you know, we did French class together. She said, I remember you spoke French. I said, yes, and you're doing Annie. <laughs> but so after that, after that, I went back to Forest Hills High School. And um, why it was so interesting is that one of my best friends, even today, it's it's very interesting. People, Forest Hills was the home of Simon and Garfunkel. They went to that high school. So they kind of had a very good tradition. It was a, a mainly... It was a mixed mixed suburb in New York, but mainly Jewish. And, and people are very musically inclined for their children. You've got to do violin. You've got to do piano and everything. And so a lot of the people were very musical. And they'd either do dance or, or music. or, or And um, one of my best friends composed our last 
the senior year production, which was called Senior Sing. And his name is Danny Troub, and he's now Disney's major orchestrator, has been nominated for four Tony Awards, and I go to the Tonys with him when he's nominated all the time. So I love it. So I'm so glad I left performing arts and met one of my new best, well, my best friend now of over 50 years. So that's kind of a very different situation. Then I went to Hunter College after that. Um, and we had terrific, a terrific faculty and wonderful training and then came here. So full circle. You started auditioning for Broadway musicals at a very young age. Yeah, I mean, I think I was probably, I was probably John Diedrich with brown hair. <laughs> he was, <laughs> he was very driven too. I used to take my sister to auditions and uh, she got the first job because she was young and short and cute and they wanted kids. They didn't want like queens in between. But so, but we, you know, you'd go and you do these auditions and you, I'd go to the, like the open chorus calls and sing and there were the equity calls and then the open calls. But it was great experience because I was on every stage on Broadway singing something, probably rather poorly, I might add, but nonetheless singing. And so by the time I got to audition for Hair, I kind of was used to it, although we didn't audition in theatres for that one. We auditioned in little rehearsal rooms. But uh, in the old days, you used to do your auditions in big Broadway houses. It's such an excitement. I mean, you know, it's crazy, isn't it? But you were cast in the, in the dance ensemble of a musical called Pickwick at the age of 14. That's true. You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, so... It was another one of those, and my sister was up for it too, because this was a Harry Seeker musical. It was based on Pickwick Papers, and my sister by now was fed up with ballet, and she had learned to ice skate. She was three years younger, so she was like 11. And they wanted her to be part of the ice skating children's ensemble, and they thought I was old enough. And when I did the dance audition for Gillian Lynn, I might add, who eventually did the original Cats, um, they decided I was good enough to be in the ensemble. And then the producer said, now we're going to have a problem with this young lady. I said, no, we're not. I'm 16. Of course, that was miles too young to tour because they were going to tour before they came into New York. And my sister and I would have gone together had I been older, but I was too young to chaperone her. And so none of neither she nor I got in, <laughs> which is just as well, because they probably wouldn't have picked me for hair if I'd had that experience. Did your sister pursue a performance career? She did to some extent. She did a lot of television. I mean, she, I remember she did something where she played, um, I want to say, a field full of buttercups. I wasn't in America by then. I was in Australia when she did that. And she was playing uh, someone who had been gassed in the camps. Yeah. Uh, and she did that for ABC television. But, you know, I think she was too young. Yeah. And I was I was the one who was the stage mother. I was like Mama Rose for her, not for me. I just went up and did it because I wanted to do it. But it never occurred to me anyone would hire me. That's why when I got here, I was like, you mean I have a job? Oh, OK. <laughs> it was so delightful. Because <laughs> by then, you know, I was 17 by the time I got here. I'd been auditioning since I was maybe 12. So, you know, you think my track record can't be very good if I can't get a job in five years. <laughs> it's a, it's a... I remember I, I, I just, I'm going to share this with you only because it was very funny. I auditioned for um, Foxy. It was a Burt Law musical set in the Klondike in the Gold Rush. 
I was all of 13. And I did the dance audition for Jack Cole, it turned out. And they called me back. And I thought, oh, they must need someone young. Now, can you imagine a 13-year-old brunette kid, skinny, long legs, in the Klondike? So I'm doing this thing, and I'm dancing with Jack Cole. And he says, you know, you have a good teacher. And I thought, huh, teacher? I have a good teacher? I'm good. Why did you say I was good? Anyway, I didn't get the job. And, of course, I did have a good teacher. Because at 13, I was keeping up with the 18-year-olds. But it's it's very you know that was just it, it's very different. I mean, you, you, and and the 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 dichotomy is to be a ballet dancer at twelve as opposed to fourteen. There's a very wide range of difference in technique. But to do Broadway between thirteen and eighteen, the steps aren't as difficult. It's not as rigorous. It's as long as you have very good technique, and you can pick up the steps you know it's just a very different experience i i enjoyed broadway dancing much more in some ways because there's much more expression you had a character you could express yourself you could have fun have you seen many ballerinas really grinning <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> exactly the musical theater is narrative driven isn't it so you, you're telling stories yes you are now you were going to ask me something else and i preempted you and i'm sorry oh no that's I fine I was just going to say um, how nice to have a brush with Jack Cole. Uh, seriously, I didn't even know it was Jack Cole. That's the thing. Uh, I had gotten into uh, Follies at Paper Mill Playhouse and Donald Sadler picked me and he was a prominent choreographer and he had done No, No, Nanette originally on Broadway, in fact, and On Your Toes and all that. And down to five people, he had picked me. And I know the people we were up against, I want to say Allegra Kent, famous ballet dancers were there um but anyway he picked me and I later said to him were you the choreographer Foxy did you like my work I didn't say did you like my teacher and uh he said no that was Jack Cole and that's how I found out it was Jack Cole oh I have a great choreographer story you're gonna love this this is a non-pc story we were all auditioning for Tea House of the August Moon it was going to be a musical Peter Gennaro famed choreographer was doing the co combination. And of course, we were all supposed to be Asian. So of course, there I was, Italian-American, Russian-Italian-American. And we were going to age up, which is disgusting, but that's what we were doing. Anyway, so we're all waiting to do the steps. And he's showing us these chenets and spins, you know, fast, fast spins, Peter Gennaro, dancing, 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 clunk. Something falls to my feet. I look down. It's his teeth. <laughs> Peter Gennaro lost his teeth and they are at my feet. <laughs> I kick him back his teeth. He says, thank you, and picks them up. I did not get the job, but I think it's because I kicked him in the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Isn't that a terrible story? You kicked Isn't his teeth across terrible? the room. I love it. I love it. Oh, Jesus. You know, it just, when you start thinking of things that happened, they do come back. They do come back. <laughs> you mentioned um, Ken Brodziak before, and he's genius, I think, as a producer in in casting uh, John Farnham and Colleen Hewitt in those those leading roles in in Pippin. I think it was probably well, as long as I can remember, the first time that that pop stars were were cast in a musical in Australia and garnered a whole new audience um, for the theatre. Uh, if you've got well, any Pippin well, John, stories, John, John, oh yeah, yeah, I have tons of Pippin stories. Oh God. Well, where to begin? 
Um, it was it was basically a very happy company, though. You see, so you you don't get many stories if you're if you're a happy company. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking now. I know that. I know that Kevin Johnston went on for Ronnie Arnold, and that was fun to work with Kevin. You know, um, Jill and Jill Perryman and Kevin Johnston, of course, musical theater legends. Um, and it was a great company. Uh, I want to say it was it was uh, John and uh, Colleen, and then um, David Ravenswood and Nancy Hayes were doing the King and Fastrada. And um, Grant Whiteman was doing the Lewis, the son, the stepson of Nancy. And I was uh, one of the girls, along with Karen. Oh, no, it wasn't Karen. Karen should have been in it. Karen Murphy was in it. And um, Darlene, oy, 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 I'm going to get into trouble. Uh, Rob Mose, Julie Fullerton, me. I always leave someone out. Anyway, and Tony Bartuccio was in the company as one of the dancers. As There was wonderful people. A lot of the people went on to do um, Chorus Line. I was already back in New York by then, so I didn't. Um, and I'm just thinking, did we, you know what we used to do that was rather fun between shows? We would show movies on matinee days on the back loading dock at Her Majesty's. And I remember one day we were we watched Kiss Me Kate. And there's that big number of Tom, Dick, and Harry, which is uh, Carol Haney dances with uh, Bob Fosse and Ann Miller's dancing with Bobby Van and um, one other. Anyway, the three of the three couples, and um, it, it never. And we loved that dance number so much, we made them play it three times because we loved it so much. But it never occurred to me that I'd be working with Ann years later. In that uh, uh, probably the first revival of Stephen Sondheim's Follies, um, you were at Pavement yeah. Playhouse, weren't you? Yes, we were. That was extraordinary. You know, I had done Grand Hotel in Paris, um, not Paris, in London, uh, and it was a long story about how that happened too. But I was covering Lillian Montevecchi. I had gone there for a holiday, and my all my holiday money had gone for an emergency dental surgery. And so I, I called up the guy who was my agent and I said, look, is there anything happening? I got to make some money. I got to, you know, I want to stay for the summer. Little did I know I ended up staying six months. So he said, well, go for this audition. And I was offered two jobs, actually. David Deguri, who had originally come out to direct, redirect Hair Melbourne. And I had become friends and he was doing something for the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, directed by uh, da, 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 da. Now it's gone. Famous delay is. Thank you very much. Help me. Trevor Nunn, thank you very much. And it was called Blue Angel. And he said, well, I have an understudy for that if you want to do it. I said, oh, okay. Uh, let me think about it. And then I called my agent. He said, look, there's a, if you're willing to do an understudy, there's a big show coming in. Grand Hotel, Tommy Toon is directing. It's, you know, a big deal. It's going to be at the Dominion. Why don't you go in for that? You know, and I went in and they said, okay, you can have the job. And I said, oh, oh, okay. Um, I need the money. Okay, I need to, you know, I wanted to stay for the summer. So I was covering the ballerina and I was covering, um, and the, I shared a dressing room with Yvonne Marceau, who part, Pierre Delaney and Yvonne Marceau were 
part of American ballroom theater and they were doing the Count and the Countess and the big bolero at the end and the dance numbers and all the dancing through the show. Anyway, so when they called American ballroom theater in New York for someone to dance with Donald Sadler, Yvonne recommended me. And they called me from paper mill, they phoned me and I said, I'm sorry, I don't do chorus auditions. I, I'm not gonna do a group audition. I don't do group auditions, no. And they kept calling and said, I, I was so not going to do this because I was convinced it was going to be like a chorus call and I don't pick up combinations quickly and I, I get nervous and da, 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 da. anyway, they said, please come. It's, it's very private. So I went in and it turned out to be Donald Sadler. One by one, we danced with him. We sang the song and I got selected. And that's how I got into Paper Mills Follies. I had literally... Packed. I was ready to go home, back to Sydney. I had a flat there. I had two trunks because I, I was subletting an apartment from Danny True, my friend. He had moved somewhere else and he wanted to run out his lease and let me sublet his lease on West 77th Street. The lease was expiring. And I said, okay, look, I'm going to close up. I'll go back. I had the two trunks packed and I got the call. And I had to unpack the trunks. I stayed. And I, and I had just enrolled in a master's program at the University of Sydney, Nepean, <clears throat> to go back and, okay, well, you know, I'll do some education, I'll teach. I've got a lot to say, I've got a lot to teach, and I'll go back to Sydney. I have lots of friends there, I have a home, blah, 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 blah. So we get, we open, and suddenly we're getting Benedict Nightingale coming over from London to review us for the Evening Standard, or whatever he was reviewing for at the time. and we're this big hit and we're doing eight and nine shows a week and we're going to Broadway and Roger Berlin was our producer and Marty Richards was going to be our company manager and we couldn't even buy our shoes because they were all going into storage because Greg Barnes costumes were going to Broadway and we were going to Broadway and it's like oh this is great this is wonderful and then of course Tales from the Crypt I can't tell you this tale because um, I might get sued and I don't want to get sued, but we didn't go to Broadway. Can you tell me we off mic? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll tell you. <laughs> I mean, it, it may not be true. The official story is that James Goldman, who wrote The Lion in Winter in the book of uh, Follies, uh, he, he hmm, well, I think he was so embarrassed that we weren't going to Broadway. He had a major heart attack in his um, entrance to his apartment building carrying a carton of cream. <laughs> literally i mean he was such a nice man too but uh bobby goldman his widow was claiming that she didn't want us to go so i, I don't know if that's the truth or if she's taking the rap but yeah um, interesting. You I played there's, Emily a, there's a couple of couple of other stories you played emily whitman uh rain on the roof i certainly did i certainly did i'll tell you a story about that song um i got very friendly with phyllis newman and of course her husband was adolph green they're both gone now. Um, but on the, tw I want to say the 20th anniversary Follies concert, it was never a show or revival, but it was a concert. Emily and Theodore Whitman were played by um, her husband, uh, Phyllis's husband, Adolf, and uh, his partner, Betty Comden. And uh, the song is, you know, listen to the rain in the roof, go pity pat, pity pat, pity pat. And it was all very doggerel rhyme and quaint and kind of, you know, 
old fashioned. And we went to a we went to a party uh, after the show closed, right after the show closed, at Phyllis and Adolph's. And Adolph came over to me and he said, oh, Natalie, I never liked that song. And I said, Adolph, what do you mean? He said, I thought Sondheim was making fun of our lyrics when he asked us to sing that. And I said, oh, OK, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> if that's how you feel. Uh, that's, that's, you never oh. know. I mean. Isn't that great? I mean, you never know what people think at that um, when they're at la that level and they're asked to do something. The second guessing that's going on. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. That's a wonderful concert, which is as recorded uh, that people can access. Uh, but Phyllis Newman does um, does. Um, who's that woman in that concert? Yes, she does. Yes, she did, and um, she did it on in our show too. Just how we got friendly, and um, the thing that. Jerry Mitchell's genius. Jerry Mitchell was our choreographer at the time. Now, Jerry Mitchell, of course, you know from Hairspray and from lots of other things. Kinky Boots. But Kinky Boots. You know, and won lots of Tonys. And we loved Jerry. We adored him. And he was our choreographer then. And Greg Barnes, who's won tons of, you know, he's got the costumes of Some Like It Hard. He's got the costumes of everything. He's got like three or four Tonys already. He did our costumes. So we had a first-rate team up there. And... um. Now I'm lost. You see, this is what happens when you go down memory lane. You go down a wormhole. <laughs> Why were we talking about we're, Jerry Mitchell? Why was it Phyllis Newman? And who's that woman? Phyllis Newman. Okay, this was his genius. Thank you very much. I'm so glad you could bring this old broad back on track. So, <laughs> Jerry, knowing who's that woman is possibly one of the longest numbers and the most massive, and it's got the entire female cast in it. All of the old broads, all of their ghosts, mirrors galore, tapping like crazy, going on forever. So good old Jerry went to Lincoln Center and he made dance notation of everything that Michael Bennett did. And we did the original Michael Bennett choreography as an homage to Michael Bennett. And God bless Jerry, it was the smartest thing he ever did. Because why would you want to tamper with something that huge and that brilliant? And it played like a dream. And there was Donna, originally from Chorus Line, and his, Michael Bennett's wife, dancing his choreography. It's kind of iconic to see that. So, you know, it was, it was, it was, and it was great fun to do. Just great fun. That when I was doing, I was doing Follies, I was doing Solange in Maine, Maine State Music Theater. And I went to Mary Jane Houdina, was the choreographer, who had done the original Follies on Broadway, the original, original. And she was using that choreography. She said, oh, please, please, let me do it. Let me do it. I want to do the, I want to do the number. She said, no, Solange doesn't do this number. I was like, no, I'm going to get fat. I wanted to do some <laughs> dancing. Yeah. But I love doing the number. <laughs> you mentioned Phyllis. You mentioned Donna McKechnie. But what an ensemble that uh, you were performing alongside. Kay Ballard, Eddie Bracken, Larry Guitar, Dee Hody, uh, and, of course, the legendary Ann Miller. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to, before I go to Ann's stories, which are legion, and everyone has them. I mean, who has ever worked with her? Um, one of the things that struck me is I was part of something that was uh, three numbers. And it was Rain on the Roof, and then Ah Paris, and then Broadway Baby. So it's Donald and me, and then it's Lillian, Lillian, and um, Kay Ballard. The first Broadway show I ever saw was Carnival, and it was with Kay Ballard. And Kay had a number, a girl from my ballet school, June Mashonic, and she had this little moment where 
Tay was grilling her, have you seen my husband? Da, 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 da. And I kind of felt special about Kay because it was my first show. And then I had gone to London and understudied Lydian, who had been less than graceful toward me, even though I was I was very nice to her. I brought her roses on her birthday. When someone died, I brought her roses again. I did everything I could. She even over somebody was saying to me in, in London something about and I didn't know she was behind me, thank God. And saying, oh, yeah, I bet you can't wait to get on. And I was, oh, no, I don't want anybody to be sick. I, and I'm not even rehearsed properly. I want to go on when they take a vacation. I don't want anyone sick. I just want to go on and, and have a good time and be prepared. And there she was behind me. Thank God I didn't say anything else. But even even being, and I even read tarot cards for her at one point. You know, I was reading for the whole company at this point. Um, but there she was in the same number with me. And I was with Donald. And I was with Kay. And it was like, my full circle, my first Broadway show, my first West End show, Donald, who had trained similarly to the with the people that worked at the Metropolitan Opera Ballet School, we were all there. It was almost like my entire life encapsulated in this one moment on stage. That was, and it was like, the first time I realized, they went, oh my God, pinch me. What does this mean? And the Ann Miller stories. Oh, dear. <laughs> You know, Anne, Anne is a dog lover. Great dog. Well, was a dog lover. I mean, she's still up there loving dogs. I'm sure she is. Um, and so she would bring, she wouldn't bring the dogs. Well, sometimes she brought dogs to rehearsal. But she wouldn't be staying at regular hotels because she brought her dogs with her everywhere. So she would be doing humble digs and she would bring her lunch with her to rehearsal. So we would be having lunch between First, the rehearsals at uh, the Michael Bennett Studio, 890 Broadway, it would be Anne, Kay Ballard, me, and Laura Kenyon, because I had no money, and I didn't want to go out and eat anyway. I, you know, I was dancing like a fool. I wasn't about to put too much food, so I had two boiled eggs, and Anne brought her food, and so we started talking. We, you know, first, no one talked to each other, because no one knew each other. We were all kind of who are you? What are you doing here? But we all got very friendly during these lunches. And eventually Anne brought her wigs on. <laughs> she had three wigs that she would wear. One was Miss Coos, Miss Poontang, and Miss, I want to say Twat. She named them. She had this dress that Greg Bonds, you see, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> she had this dress that Greg Bonds had designed for the show. And the reason that it was blue sequins with um, an Egyptian lotus on it was that she had heard that she was reincarnated from a female pharaoh. So she wanted an Egyptian motif on her dress. Now, it was a beautiful dress, I might say. But I went to her one day and I said, you know, Anne, there was a big special on Hatshepsut the other night. And she said, who? And I said, Anne, Hatshepsut, the female pharaoh. Oh, is that how you say it? I always want to know how to say it. <laughs> another day, another day, one of the chorus girls, one of the ghosts, was standing in the wings with Anne Miller. And she says, she looks at the kid and says, do you ever have an out-of-body experience and see yourself on the stage and know you suck? Um, what do you say to that? Uh uh, yes, Miss Miller. <laughs> Things like that. One, we had a review once, and Vincent Canby in one of the newspapers. 
magazine said that something about frailness of Ann Miller. And I'm walking down the hall and Ann goes, Nat, Nat, what is it? Am I frail? I went, hell no. She said, why did he say it? (laughs) 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 Anyway. Well, thank goodness that production is preserved in a recording which which people can access too. I've listened to it many times and um, I wish I'd seen it. It was harsh though. It was it was a harsh recording session. We had nine shows that week and a party and we started at 8.30 or 9 the next morning to record. And, you know, God bless. I sound shitty, but it's we volunteered, Donald and me, to go first because we figured we had the lightest load. And boy, does it sound it. <laughs> we could have been a lot better <laughs> if they put on extra shows because we just couldn't, uh, couldn't. The people were clamoring and, you know, there was another show coming in. So they just added as many shows as they could. There is a lot of YouTube out there. If you piece it together, the entire show is on YouTube. Unfortunately, it was filmed by the people who were friends of the ghosts. So you miss some of the old people and you get to see a lot of their ghosts more than but you, you get the flavour of the piece, and it's very dark, but it's really quite good. Can we return to Grand Hotel and Grushinskaya? Because that's a, oh, a role that, that you, you actually got to do, and then you did it on tour, didn't you? Yes, yes. I was thrilled that I got. Actually, yeah, I was so glad Liliane's gone because she would hate me if she heard me say this. I went to see it in New York, and I thought she was walking through it. Now, I got to know her later, and I realised she works off her mood at the moment. No, she's not one of those people that plots out a character because Tommy built, Tommy Tune, the director, built the role around her. She was basically giving carte blanche, do what you want, say what you want. And some days she was in a foul humor. So she played it foully. I think I might have gotten that matinee. But I sat there thinking in the audience of the 46th Street Theater, fuming, this part is beautiful. I could play this part better. God damn it, she's walking through it. She's ruining it. She's missing a moment. Well, famous. Be so, famous last words, be sorry. Be, be, be. Well, actually, I was grateful that I was angry. When I get very angry about something, I usually get it. And another lesson, don't let me be your understudy because I get to go on and not because I'm ruthless or horrible. I just work very hard and I get to take over. And most times I have taken over if I've been in understudy. Anyway, story is that... Um, I did do Grand Hotel in London and I worked very hard and I did go on for her when she had to go to a funeral in in Paris because one of her apparently lovers died and she also went on holiday and I loved doing it. It was a beautiful experience. I also had to understudy Raffaella, the other part, and I did not enjoy doing it. And there are many reasons why. Firstly, she's glum, 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 glum. Very sad woman, very unhappy. But It was also that she had to climb up like 25, 30 feet above the audience and the orchestra, which is another 10 foot drop, and stand on a beam about one and a half feet wide, maybe two, and sing, what she needs is someone strong. Now, the woman who played the role, Debbie DeCoudreau, was almost six feet tall, maybe six, yeah, 5'11", six tall. So the lamp was... And the way it was set so that it would hit her face. And because she was so tall and where the lamp was coming from, I had to step away from the back that I could lean on anything and just step out into open space or be in the dark. 
Now, I'm not good at heights anyway. And to know that there's like a 35, 40 foot drop if I step in the wrong spot and have a light in your face and you cannot see the parameters at the end until the light goes out. It was a horrible experience to do that. Okay, so anyway, I did get to tell what the, the assistant director to uh, Tommy on that production who cast me, Tommy didn't cast me. He met me later and started calling me Dollface, which did not endear me to Lillian at all. Um, please. <laughs> Um, he he was Bruce Lumpkin, and uh, when Bruce, when they were mounting the national tour, and a second national tour starting at the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia, which is actually oldest um, continuous uh, regional theater in America, and it's a beautiful house. It's about a 900 seat. It's not huge, but it's charming and beautiful, and it's loaded with history. And uh, Bruce, his wife at the time, who had been the understudy to one of the companies was doing Flemshin, the other female. And um, we had gotten friendly and I just called out of the blue and said, hey, what's going on? And she said, you know, we were just talking about you, excuse me. Um, this is not to say that I didn't get wind that they were doing it, but I was, you know, letting them have the idea. So I said, oh, really, what about? Well, we're doing Grand Hotel, you want to do it again? I said, oh, gee, that would be fun. Yes, please. So I didn't have to audition or anything, but I, of course I hadn't been doing a lot of ballet because I'd been doing other things. So fast forward the next, I'm hired, the next week I fall into a ballet class at Steps. There's the wife, Flemshin, out of condition like crazy. There I am, out of condition like crazy. We both fall on each other. Okay, let's get to work. <laughs> and we, of course, got up to speed, got up to speed. But, you know, it's uh, but yes, I did do I toured. God, I want to do seven or eight weeks in in and I maybe miss. And then we uh, in in uh, Philadelphia, wonderful city, just gorgeous. That's where I went to my first Whole Foods. It was 1999. And I thought this is great. If I had money, which I didn't, I would invest in this company. Oh, wouldn't I have been smart? Wouldn't I have been the smartest little whip? Anyway, um, then we went on to Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, which had the most beautiful Art Deco theater, huge, I want to say 2,000 seats or something. And we played there for another week and a half or two weeks. It's just beautiful, just beautiful. And then I left the show and Lillian took over for Seattle and Houston. And then the show ended. Um, so. That was such such a wonderful show, and of course the genius of of Tommy Tune. Uh, did you get to work with Tommy in that uh, London production that you were understudying? In London, about? I did. In London, yeah. I did. Yeah, I got to work with Tommy, and of course Wally Harper was the musical director, and Wally is Barbara Cook's musical director. Now Wally was not musical director. We, we had two, we had two and three casts of everything. We had the London musical director, we had the American musical director, we had Wally Harper who was the special musical director. And then we had the stage director, and then we had Bruce Lumpkin, and then we had Tommy Tune. And so it's like, you know, you were triple, triplex personalities. But um, yes, I did. I get, I got to work with Tommy a lot because uh, the, the, I was, I was asked to cover the bells, and not the bells, the, uh, the um, operators as well. They had run out of money. They'd spent so much money on the London production, they didn't have any more money to understudy the other roles. And they said, look, we know you, your principal 
cover, but would you be willing to cover the girls as well? And my thinking was, well, I've never been on this stage. I don't know what the energy's like out there. I think I'd better go out there and feel it before I go and do Brzezinskaya, you know? So I said, sure. And oh, God. so we opened, I want to say our first preview was June 6th. No, maybe that was the first rehearsal. No. No, I want to say we started rehearsals in May. Our first preview was June 6th. I was on in the middle of the show to do We'll Take a Glass Together, the big dance number. I want to say about the 5th of July. I was never off again until October 31st, which is the day that we closed. Wow. I was exhausted. I bet. I was, I was covering the three roles plus the two leads. Then they asked me to cover the, the, well, the Count and the Countess as well, which was ridiculous. Then I was doing two to three ballet classes, no, three ballet classes a week, two singing lessons, and two understudy rehearsals a week. And one of the kids in the show, Madam, the lady playing Madam Pee-Pee, said to me, what are you going to do in your spare time, love? Spit the Adam. <laughs> I was so tired. And this is interesting because I called in sick one night. That was the one night I was off. I'd gone to my singing teacher. Um, who was it? She's wonderful. Anyway, and uh, she said, you're exhausted. Call in sick. I said, I can't miss. You know, I'm, I'm covering. What if they need me? Ask if you need it. I called the theater three times to say, is it okay? I'm not coming in. Is it okay? Is it okay? Not, is it okay? I'm not coming in. I get a call from this one of the assistant stage managers, Natasha Katz, by the way, brilliant lighting designer, multiple Tonys and awards for everything under the planet. And it's, hello, Natalie. Yes, it's Natasha. Oh, hi, Natasha. Are you coming in? I said, no, no, I'm just too sick. Don't you phone? I said, I phoned three times. Stage doorman never told her. Oh, dear. So they didn't need me. But it turned out, you know, it was just, it was just, the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. It was such a big show. Such a big show. Mm. And a lovely company. It was people, people from the RSC and the National and people from just all over. And then, and then there was the, this is the craziest part. It was a mixed cast. Now, I'm Australian, but I was hired as part of the British company, Australian America. Lillian, because she'd been brought over from America, even though she's native French, was the American cast. Then George, who was British by birth and was playing the chauffeur, because he played in America, was part of the American cast. And so it went. It was all this complete that nonsense about, you know, when I was at Equity in Australia, and we were having all this um, requests for people to come over to do, you know, like Europe, um, Brits or Americans. And I finally, and I, this was part of my idea, I guess I'll take credit for it because I, I think it was my idea. I said, well, look, we've got Cameron McIntosh. He's got productions all over. Let's change it. Let's make it a quota system. If they insist upon bringing someone in, they have to take one of ours out, you know. And, it, and that's kind of how the swaps all began. 
And I was very happy for that. I mean, you, you really should stay in one place to, to have a career. But it's also terrific experience to take yourself into another country and realize, yes, I've got it anywhere. You know, Australians, when I first moved there, were like, how do you like it here? Oh, I think it's great. You do? You know, um, what do you think of the cast? I think you're all very talented. We are. You know, it's get outside. Try it. Put your, put your meat on the line elsewhere and you'll see how darn good you are. And now, of course, they are. They're all over. They're winning Oscars. They're winning everything. It's terrific. I'm so proud of my babies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And conquering the Broadway stage, of course, and winning yes, Tonys. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Natalie, it's, a, it's, it's obviously been a career of many opening nights. Um, do you have an opening night routine that you to go through before you commence a season? No, <laughs> absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. I mean, I do have, um, before any show, and especially before an opening, uh, and usually now I'm doing more plays and musicals, so, but I, I have to, the more, the more work I've done on the character, and the more I can get into it and just let the river flow, the better the role, the better the evening is going to be for everybody, including the audience. I shouldn't be thinking about me. I shouldn't think about opening night. I should be thinking about what's going on at that very moment on one stage. Now, I can say what's really horrible is closing night. Because as you say a song, a line or sing a song, your head will just naturally go to, that's the last time I'm going to say that. That's the last time I'm going to sing that. And that really gets in the way of playing the role. Yeah. But yeah. no, I don't have an opening night. Um, absolutely not. Not at all. Maybe I do, but I don't think I do. I, I meditate before my performance every night. I try and um, get a message of what to focus on every day, because if you're doing a long run, you have to pick different things to focus on. I mean, I was doing Rocky Horror in, in Sydney. I was doing it in Brisbane, too, and surfers, but mostly Sydney, with Reg, a revival. And... Um, Poor old Magenta. She's got 11 lines. You know, she's got nothing to say. So one night I just spent the whole night smelling the castle. I mean, you know, it's dank, it's musty. Because you, well, how much new can you bring? You know, you just have to find something to focus on. You know, long, long runs are hard. They're really hard. To keep them fresh, to find a way. Oh, yes. Yes. So, no, I'm sorry about the opening night ritual. Did I say I had an opening night ritual? No, 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 no. These are standard questions I ask everybody at the at the end of oh, a, okay. a conversation. Okay. And the other one is, are you superstitious in the theatre? Well, I wasn't because I didn't know there were superstitions. But then one day I had re-enrolled in university. We were doing hair in Melbourne. And I enrolled in the University of Melbourne in a, in a theatre course. And I... I'm sitting next to Reg in the dressing room, putting on my slack. And he says, oh, what, do you, what did you do today? I said, oh, I was at University of Melbourne in my class. We were reading Macbeth. Well, you think <laughs> he would have jumped out of his seat. And everybody went, she doesn't know. I said, know what? Know what? They told me. I said, okay, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Whatever they told me to do, I did. I never said it again. And Reg went, well... Because you didn't know, I guess it's fine. But he wasn't convinced until the curtain went down that night. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm superstitious all the time because I don't know who I'm going to offend, you know. 
You have so many wonderful stories. Have, have you thought of writing a book, penning an autobiography? Oh, well, don't people want to read about people they know, you know, sort of famous, not just sort of pseudo-famous, semi-famous, floating through time and ether? Perhaps, but I think they all, you know, the, the theatre aficionado would lie, love access to all those those wonderful backstage stories that you've shared today. And, and I guess that's what oh. this pod, podcast does. It does allow people to um, to get an insight into into our, our history and um, and what it is like to be um, a performing artist. Well, you know, I do write. Um, apart from having done the Get Happy thing, uh, the tribute to Harold Arlen with Frank Garfield, um, I wrote a play as part of my master's for the University of Western Sydney that because I over-researched over, over it, they had to upgrade me to a doctor of creative arts. It was called A Brush with Georgia O'Keeffe. And part of it was writing a play, which I thought was going to be a one-woman play, but my director decided it was a three-person play. So it was one man and two women, and I played Georgia all the way through, and then one other woman played all the other women in my life, and one man played all the men in my life, me being Georgia. Um, and we did that, and that was kind of fun. Um, and that was uh, produced, I want to say, 2004, and then again 2008, and we ran six months off-Broadway, and then we played the Smithsonian Institute. And when I broke my leg in 2019, which is a really horrible story, I got a, I got a play that afternoon. Somebody had contracted cancer and had to leave the show, and I got offered the job, and I went in and met the director and met the cast, and we were all happy. And I went home and went up a ladder to get something on the ceiling or swat something that I was I thought was on the ceiling. And I fell off like two and a half feet, broke my leg. And as I fell, and there was nothing to hold on to, I went into slow motion. And I thought, oh, this is not good. This is what they say happens. Oh, I think I've done something really, really bad. So I, I anyway, so there I was, not able to walk on my leg for four months and had to be home and had to be in a wheelchair and hop around the hop, hop, hop to London town or then London town was the bathroom down the hall. And <clears throat> I decided to start another play and I had been supposed to do a play on the Duchess of Windsor for one of the Sydney festivals for Barry Lowe playwright and Max Phipps was gonna direct it. And I had been working with Barry for a long time on the script and he was very unsympathetic and I couldn't play someone that, I, I didn't wanna just criticize her like a drag queen, you know, not that there's anything wrong with drag queens, they're fine, but there is a certain type of stance when you approach a character that has a little bit of archness to it. And I'm not that kind of an actor. I can be if that's what the role is requiring, but I didn't feel that was right for this role. And so I worked a long time with Barry to make the script more believable. I did a lot of research and then it was like 200 pages long or something in single space. And I finally said, wait a minute, I only have three weeks to learn this. I'm not going up with a book, which I probably should have done. But I just said, we have to cancel. You know, it was about four weeks in before, maybe three weeks before, we, three weeks before we we're going to start rehearsals. I knew there was no way I could learn it. Max Phipps almost never talked to me again. He was so angry. And we pulled out of it and I never did it. And then I'm sitting there thinking, what could I do? What could I write with this broken leg? And I thought, what about that? And I contacted Barry via email because now he's living in Malta. And I said to him, you know, do you want to work on this with me? 
or are you over it? And can I just take the ball and run with it? He said, take the ball and run with it. And uh, I did. And I came up with a piece that was called um, That Wallace Woman. Um, and it was two acts. And I did a reading in December. And everybody said, well, that's way too long. So I condensed it to 85 minutes. And it's called Wallace in Wonderland. And it's good. I think it's even better than O'Keefe. It's really good. And I'm looking forward to doing it. And I'd love to do it in Australia. And um, I don't have an agent there anymore. So I'd love one. I don't have an agent in, and my agents are all dead. That's what's happened. So I just happen to have lost the, it's rather careless of me. I've lost the last one recently. Um, <laughs> I mean, really sad. I mean, I've had so many deaths this year. It's outrageously unspeakable. And so, you know, if anybody has an agent out there, they, they think would want this little broad, this old broad, I'd love to come and do my one woman show. Um, Wallace in Wonderland, waiting Coming to a theatre near you. <laughs> yeah. Have you had the, had the opportunity to um, return to Australia very often in the last few years? I suppose COVID's put a, um, a dampener on that. You know, I used to have to come back to Australia every three years when I was a permanent resident because that was an immigration requirement to maintain my residency. However, when, um, when the US consulate and the Australian consulate embassy uh, approached me and said would you like to be a citizen and I said well um, sure I'd love that why would I why would you want, want me to do that and the reason behind that was the U.S. consulate said if you get taken hostage two countries can fight for you which I didn't feel very warm about I, I, I thought that was a poor reason but I was thrilled to become an Australian and that happened and then once you're a citizen you don't have to come back on a regular basis, which I, I kind of miss. But um, I, I did come back in 2004 because my master's was so overworked that they I had to defend my dissertation and upgrade to a, a doctorate. And so that happened. And that was the last time I've been back is 2004. So I'm long. You are. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll see you soon. But in the meantime, you. it's been, been wonderful to have this conversation. I know that a lot of you are Australian friends and past colleagues will will be thrilled to hear your voice once again and um i've i've thoroughly enjoyed it so thank you well i mean um i've, I've worked with a lot of people in australia and i i love most of the people i've worked with i can honestly say there are maybe three or four people in the entire time i worked in australia that i would never want to work with again and that's a pretty good record <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely way to finish thank you so much natalie moscow um have a lovely day you too, thank you. Having heard of Natalie's many stellar performances in Australia, it was an absolute treat to catch up with her and discover more about her journey here and abroad. I'm sure many of Natalie's colleagues and friends down under felt very much the same. Thank you, Natalie Moscow, for joining the Stages podcast for this very special double episode. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Stages.